0: Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Thanks be to God for his word.
1: Well, good morning, Redeemer. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, It's a joy to be with you, to worship with you, um, and to bring God's word to you. Uh, This morning, as Susan said, we're going to be studying the prophet Micah together. Micah is one of the minor prophets, and as I said last Sunday, the minor prophets are called minor not because they're short books, but because they were short people. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, It's because they look for rocks underground. Nope, uh, they're underage. Okay, that's all my minor prophet jokes. I got them out. Uh, They're called minor prophets because they're short books. It's the only reason is that they're shorter books, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And this week we're taking up the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah is one of the earliest minor prophets. He lived and wrote around 750 to 700 B.C. So for historical context, this was in Greece. The first Olympics were held in 776. And for biblical historical context, King David united Israel into one kingdom around 1,000 B.C., and then ancient Israel split into two kingdoms in 930. And then in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And so Micah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital city of Jerusalem was, about the time of the northern kingdom's destruction. So these were dark times dark times of unbelief, injustice, oppression, and in all of Israel. And into this context, Micah was called by God to be a prophet, to speak God's word and to function as his lawyer to his unbelieving and unfaithful people. If you could summarize the prophet Micah's message into one question, it would be, what does God want? What does God want? This is a great question for us to wrestle with. I mean, we spend so much of our time trying to figure out what we want or what our bosses want, or what our spouses want, or what our children want, or our friends. But Micah pulls us up out of ourselves. He lifts our heads and fixes our gaze on on God and helps us ask and answer the question, what does God want? And this is the answer that he gives. God wants his kingdom, the kingdom of God, to fill the earth. In the passage that Susan just read for us, Micah 6, 1 through 8, God gives us a clear picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what this means and what it means for, what it means for, or what it looks like for us to long for it and even to participate in it here on earth. And so I want to summarize Micah 6, 1 through 8 for us in one sentence. It's that the kingdom of God looks like our justice and mercy and humility motivated by God's rescue. The kingdom of God looks like our justice, our mercy, and our humility motivated by God's rescue. In other words, God rescues us from ourselves to live for others by doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. And so Micah gives us this clear and permanent picture of the kingdom of God in two parts. And so for those of you who are taking notes or following along in your Bible, my outline is this. Verses one through five shows us the motivation of the kingdom of God, the why of the kingdom of God. Why would we even consider giving ourselves to something as absurd as loving God and loving others? And second, verses 6 through 8, we see, we see the manner of the kingdom of God, the way that we love others and love God, what the kingdom of God looks like in practice, what it looks like in 3D. So the motivation and the manner of the kingdom of God. So first, the motivation, the why of our love, verses 1 through 5. So this passage, this passage starts with an indictment. This is a courtroom scene that we're brought into in Micah 6. And this word that's translated for us, indictment, is a Hebrew word, reeb which is a legal term. It's an ancient Near Eastern legal procedure. So it's like we're being brought into an ancient episode of Law and, Order, Law and Order. So the second half of the show, not the first half where there's the murder and the investigation, but the second half where we're in the courtroom, and that's what this is. It's a courtroom procedure. We've got a trial scene with a prosecutor and a defendant, a judge, a jury, and evidence. That's what we have here. So first one, God summons his people, ancient Israel, the church, to this court appearance to defend ourselves. In verse 2, God sets his jury, and his jury is the mountains. So why the mountains? Because they've been there the whole time. They're watching Israel. The mountains of Israel are mighty enough to weigh such a big spiritual accusation and have witnessed God's people failing him. Think of it like God setting your phone as your jury. Little did you know, your microphone and your camera have been on the whole time, And has not only heard you and seen you, but has read your thoughts. And your phone is in the jury booth. And this is terrifying. So you are the defendant, God is the judge, God is the prosecutor, and he has stacked the jury. And in verse three, he begins his indictment. And instead of coming at us with the full force of what we deserve to hear, he pleads with us. Instead of saying, do you know what you have done? Do you know how you have wearied me? answer me. Instead, he does the opposite. He asks, what have I done to you that has led to your disobedience, to your rebellion, to your wickedness? It's like the parent who looks at their disobedient child for the hundredth, the thousandth time and says, what did I do to make you not want to obey me? The difference in this is that honest parents know that they have done plenty to make their kids not want to obey. And God is perfect. And this is just not how courtrooms work. But rather than laying into his people, God pleads with us and then recounts the story of his love and rescue. One of my friends says that this should feel awkward to us. Here we are in a courtroom scene, we're bracing ourselves for a verbal spanking, and instead we get the Lord of everything that is, the King of the universe, rehearsing his love for us. But please don't miss this in your surprise. God isn't just giving a history lesson, but he's proving his love through history. And he does this in verse 4 and 5 by focusing our attention on the Exodus. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Old Testament, the Exodus is the story that's told in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And it is the story of God rescuing his people from 430 years of slavery in Egypt, leading them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Now, why does God focus on this story? Why is it this one? It's because this is the story of God's rescue, and it serves as the model for every rescue mission that God goes on after it. This is the model for how God rescues his people from sin and death. It's the model for God how, res- how God rescues you. And using it here, this is what God is saying through Micah. He's saying you must see yourself spiritually in the physical story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And he focuses on four parts of the Exodus, the rescue, the shepherds, the blessing, and the promised land. So the rescue, he says he brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, rescued from you from spiritual slavery into freedom and dignity. And brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You were enslaved to sin and he has redeemed you, bought you out of sin with his life, exchanged his life for yours on the cross. And then Micah draws our attention to the shepherds, to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam. And these are God's appointed leaders that led Israel out of Israel, that gathered them up, led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, through the dry spiritual places in the wilderness, through Moab and Shittim and Gilgal, teaching them who they were as God's beloved people. And this is what Jesus does for us in the church. He has rescued you into his people. The church is where we learn about his goodness and his grace and our place in his story. And he has given us pastors and elders and older women and older men to shepherd us through this life. So the rescue, the shepherds, and then the blessing. God desires to bless his people despite their sin. This is what Mike is talking about with Balak, the king of Moab, because he tried to get Balaam, who was a prophet, to curse Israel, but God intervened. And instead of cursing God's people, to everyone's surprise, Balaam blessed them. And then finally, finally the promised land. Just as certain as ancient Israel's freedom, they were no longer enslaved in Egypt. They had a home in the promised land in Canaan. Just as certain as this was for them physically, this is the reality for us who belong to Jesus. That we will have complete and utter rest, an ultimate rest in God's heavenly kingdom. Here's what God's saying to you saying to us through Micah, you must see yourself spiritually in the physical story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Now, why? Why has God done all this? Look at verse 5. This is what he says. He says, that we, so that we might know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's saying it is all for his glory, and his glory is displayed through his redemption. But even with the love of God traced through history. Even with reading this on the other side of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, on the other side of the cross and the tomb, empty tomb, even with knowing that everything that we've experienced has to have passed through the the nail-scarred hands of our Savior who loves us, so it must be for our good. Even knowing all these things, the takeaway from verse 1 through 5 is that most of us, a lot of the time, are in fact weary with God. Even though we have no right or no reason to be, we're weary with God. Why is this? I mean, the pages of Scripture are clear that we should be rejoicing in the salvation that he has won for us in Christ. But instead, we're tired with him. We're weary. We're worn out. We're exhausted. Why do we grow weary with God? I think it's because we think perfection is better than redemption. I think the reason that we're weary with God is because we think that perfection is better than redemption. Here's what I mean. We are more concerned with doing it right, with getting it perfect, than we are with praising the one who became all that is wrong with us on our behalf. My friend told me the story. He said a pastor he knows was, was meeting with a man who was not a Christian and over the course of their friendship, they talked through a lot of the challenges and the tough questions that many of us face and that many of our neighbors face about the Christian faith things like, are science and faith compatible? Or what does the God of the Bible have to say about American politics? What does God have to say about human sexuality? Why is there anything and not nothing? And finally, the man asked the pastor, if God is good and his creation is very good, then why did God allow sin to enter into his creation? Y'all, that's a fantastic question. Why did God allow sin to enter into his creation? Now, how would you answer this if someone asked you this? Why did God allow sin to enter this his creation? And here's what the pastor said, and I think this is brilliant. God allowed sin to enter in because redemption is better than perfection. Redemption is better than perfection. But we don't believe this. We think that perfection is better than redemption. And that makes us grow weary with God because He wants you to experience his redemption in your life, not for you to try to be perfect. So why do we do this? Why do we pursue perfection? In her book, Perfecting Ourselves to Death, Lauren Winter writes this. She says, there are two passions at the heart of perfectionism. First is the hatred of being a limited person in an uncertain world. And second is our love for the illusion of control and the possibility of making life predictable. She writes, feeling threatened, the perfectionist tries to feel in control by assuming that he or she is or can be omniscient and omnipotent. Control over oneself and one's environment is essential in order to avoid feeling helpless and powerless. This is why we set unrealistic goals about our time and commitments. It's because we hate being a limited person in an uncertain world. This is why we're so good at to do lists because we have this enduring romance with the illusion of control. And perfectionism takes many different forms. Our efforts to push away the sadness, to minimize the brokenness, to hide our guilt, to lie about our shame, to retreat into isolation, to work ourselves to the bone at our jobs, to control our children's lives. The reason why we spend more time studying the markets than we do the contours of our children's faces, it all comes from the same root. We think perfection is better than redemption. So we push ourselves towards perfection and hide the things that make, we, make us feel like we're not there yet. No wonder we're tired with God. So what is perfectionism? I've heard it defined this way. Three things. Performing for God, pushing yourself, and pleasing others. And y'all, that slays me. This is my default mode. At a fundamental level, I believe that perfection is better than redemption, and that puts me at odds with the God of the universe. Does this describe you? Do you feel like you're performing for God, or pushing yourself, or that you have to please others? Why do we do this? Remember what Lauren Winter said. She says, we hate being a limited person in an uncertain world, and we love the illusion of control. She writes, we do not like being finite and limited. And when things feel insecure and dangerous, we try to take control of our world. And sometimes we try to control other people's worlds as well. But the problem at the heart of it all is that we cannot trust that God is in control. Our problem, we think that perfection is better than redemption. But the God who made you, the God who made everything, the God who entered space and time as an Aramaic speaking Jewish man 2,000 years ago, Who took on the limitations of mortality gave up actual control in order to accomplish redemption this god says that redemption is better than perfection so back to micah we're in the courtroom with god he says to you how have i wearied you and we respond i'm trying to be perfect and i'm exhausted and god's response is my redemption is better than perfection Friends, God is more concerned with you knowing his love for you than he is with what's on your resume or what, how accomplished your kids are or in what social circles you run You run in. He cares far more about you knowing his forgiveness than he does about you not sinning. He cares far more about you learning to call him father than he does about you making him proud. He cares, car, he cares far more about you collapsing into his open arms than he does about you pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. He cares far more about you telling the truth about your brokenness and sin and his healing and his forgiveness than he does about you showing him in the world how good you're trying to be. If you're tired, if you're wearied by God, it's because you're doing it wrong. Trying to do it right is doing it wrong. God wants you to be motivated by his redemption, not your perfection. And Micah shows us that the motivation for the kingdom is the rescue of God his redemption. Why do we do anything for God? Because he first loved us. And verses one through five show us the gratitude for God's rescue, that that's the motivation for love in the kingdom. Verses six to eight show us that justice and mercy and humility are the manner of the kingdom of God. And this word manner, it comes from the Latin word for hand, manus, and it means just something we do with regularity, our custom or our practice, our manners, the manner. So what am I supposed to do? What does God want from me? And before we unpack justice and mercy and humility and look at how God through Micah leads us to these conclusions, remember, God put us on the witness stand and then asked us, how have I wearied you? Calling out our perfectionism, showing us his redemption. And according to verse six, our hearts answer to God's plea by crying out, um, sorry, our hearts answer God's plea. Our hearts cry out, What do you want from me, God? Verses 5 or 6 and 7 is this laundry list of ever more impossible things to sacrifice. From precious year-old calves to thousands of sacrificed rams to 10,000 rivers of oils put before God. And the climax of this list is child sacrifice, which shows just how exasperated the cry is. You can imagine a frustrated friend or family member yelling into your heart, What do you want from me? Do you want me to go home? Fine. Do you want me to never come back again? Fine. Do you want me to run away to the ends of the earth? Fine. Like that would solve all your problems, wouldn't it? But that isn't what you want, and that's definitely not what God's want. Here's what this is saying. God does not want your religious hype. When he confronts your perfectionism with his redemption, he doesn't want you to respond with some sort of religious performance. He's not asking you to prove yourself to him Or to prove to him that you like him. Why? Because none of these sacrifices look like the kingdom of God. Well, then what does God want? Verse 8 tells us exactly what God wants. He wants what is good. And what does the kingdom of God look like? He says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And these three requirements summarize all 613 laws in the Old Testament. This is how we participate in God's kingdom. And to quote Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel, he says, to live by these laws is to live within time the life of eternity. That is, the kingdom of God's eternity, its majesty and goodness and truth come from the presence of justice and mercy and humility. But if we're honest, doing justice and loving mercy and walking in humility are as overwhelming as 613 perfect laws to follow. Right, Because as Susan already said, reason, reading the news right now is overwhelming. So much oppression, so much injustice, and corruption, and heartache, and need, and fear, and uncertainty, and arrogance. I mean, what do you do when you read the headlines? Right? The suffering of the world is overwhelming. How are we to respond? Remember, God loves redemption more than perfection. And the response that God wants from you, that he wants from us, from his church is not to fix it. It's not to perform or to push yourself or to please others. Jesus is on the throne. You cannot knock him off. Jesus doesn't want you to be perfect, but he has redeemed you to be a part of his kingdom coming onto this earth as far as the curse is found. C.S. Lewis, in an essay he wrote called Why I Am Not a Pacifist, tackles this overwhelming challenge of kingdom work beautifully. This is what he says. He says, I have I've received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives, such as the abolition of the slave trade, or prison reform, or factory acts, or curing tuberculosis. Not by those who think they can achieve universal justice, or universal health, or universal peace. I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as well as we can. This is more useful than all the proposals for universal peace that have ever been made. And then to drive this point home, Lewis writes this. He says, the dentist who can stop one toothache is a greater human being than all those who have some scheme for producing a perfectly healthy race. So let me offer a few ways that we can, as Lewis says, work quietly away at limited objectives tackling each immediate evil. Here are just a few quick applications of how we do the daily dentistry of mercy, justice, and humility. What I'm about to share with you comes from Ben Robertson and Joel Hamernick. So first, doing justice. Doing justice is about giving people what they deserve. Justice is about giving people what they deserve. In the kingdom of God, everyone deserves to live freely and with dignity. So doing justice on a community level looks like trying to learn about and confront the oppression behind somebody's poverty. Many of you know this statistic, but according to a 2015 Harvard study, Winston-Salem is the most difficult city in the United States to escape child poverty, excluding a couple of Indian reservations across the country. This study surveyed almost every county in the United States and based on a number of factors, concluded that excluding these reservations Winston-Salem has the lowest social mobility in the country. Brothers, I don't, brothers and sisters, I don't share this with you to shame you, but to say there is much here to do in this call to do justice. And as we take up this work, which many of us, many of you have been involved in for a long time, we do this work, we must understand that the gospel is not conservative. It doesn't always assume a person is poor because of their bad choices alone. And the work of justice, give, justice is giving people what they deserve because they bear the, the image of God, full stop. And many of you are doing it, and my encouragement to you is to keep going, remembering the words of C.S. Lewis that the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives. The Lord sees you, He sees you and is with you in this work in your work in medicine and law and business and education and everything in between. And if this is not a category that you have yet, if if justice is not something you're currently doing, hear this invitation from your king. Join him in the daily dentistry of justice and mercy. So if doing justice is about giving people what they do what they deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve. And the kingdom of God Everyone deserves to live freely and with dignity, even if he or she is at fault for the subhuman way they live. So loving mercy on a community level looks like entering into tragedies, whether those tragedies are self-inflicted addiction or unforeseen natural disaster. So the questions that we ask each other as the church and we continue to ask is who needs our help? Who's in trouble because of their actions or because of societal factors? And why should we help? Do they deserve our help? No. But that's exactly what mercy is. It's undeserved help. Giving people what they don't deserve because this is what God requires of us. Therefore, we understand that the gospel is not liberal. It doesn't always assume that a person is poor because of everyone else. So if doing justice is about giving people what they do deserve, if loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve, Walking humbly with your God is recognizing that I don't deserve. Walking humbly with God is recognizing that I don't deserve. In the kingdom of God, even you and I deserve to live freely and with dignity. And walking humbly is not only the hardest of these three commands. The Hebrew word for walk refers to the entirety of our lives. Walking with humility is essential to doing justice and loving mercy. You Remember what I said about perfectionism We don't like being finite and limited. And when things feel insecure and dangerous, we try to take control of our own world. Sometimes we try to control other people's worlds as well. And the problem at the heart of it is that we do not trust that God is in control. And unless we understand that in everything we do, we need God. We need God the way a basketball needs air or a kite needs wind. Unless we understand that we need God, we will never be able to do justice and love mercy. Without Jesus, there's no forgiveness for our unwillingness to go there. Without redemption, we're actually, we'll never actually try to do justice or love mercy fully, and we'll be stuck in the rat race of our own perfectionism. Brothers and sisters, we need the Holy Spirit's power to make us show up and do justice and to change our hearts and to actually love mercy. With justice, walking humbly looks like confronting people's wrongs. Behind, confronting the wrongs behind the mess in our lives and other people's lives and with mercy It looks like befriending the down and out around you slowly telling them about Jesus and how he changes people It looks like walking and leading with the limp of repentance not as people who do it perfectly But as recovering perfectionists who are learning to believe that Jesus actually loves us despite our accomplishments The motive for his kingdom is redemption God doesn't want you to be perfect but he wants you to experience his redemption at the depths of your life, in the unhealed plot lines of your story. And the manner of his kingdom is justice and mercy and humility. And this is what God has rescued us to, to share in his kingdom, to be a part of his work, bring it to reality, to to live and work and love in God's kingdom as far as the curse is found. And we see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things. We see this most clearly, this vision of justice and mercy and humility, where we see all things that are good and true and beautiful in the king himself. We see this most clearly in Jesus, who entered into the world as the embodiment of God's justice, who when his cousin John the Baptist asked him if he was the Messiah or if he should wait for another, Jesus pointed to his works of justice that he was accomplishing in their midst. Sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, healing to the sick and who on the cross gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin so that he could be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This Jesus entered the world as the embodiment of mercy. When he encountered those who had train wrecked their own lives in the pursuits of sex or money or power, he didn't shame them, but was the extension of God's mercy to them. The tax collector who ruined all his relationships by extorting extorting money from his community. The woman whose life was a string of bad relationships but couldn't break the cycle. The disciples who were more concerned with jockeying for power in the kingdom than they were with beholding the king in their midst. And the one who on the cross died for his enemies. The ones who deserve his just judgment but instead receive his mercy, which is ours by faith. This Jesus entered the world not in robes of splendor, not like Prince Ali entering the kingdom of Agrabah on elephants but humbly, as humbly as possible, through the, through the womb of a religious and ethnic minority on the edge of the world's largest empire. This Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has has exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name. So, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are a king with a kingdom that you have saved us out of the wreckage of sin and death in our own lives and delivered us into the kingdom of your Son that is full of justice and mercy and humility. Lord, thank you that this is the word you speak to your church, that you fill us with your Spirit, and you send us out in your love and your power to your glory. Help us. We need your help. To tell the truth, to live into redemption, and to not cower into perfectionism and to do the work that you've called us to do. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.